Hey everybody, it's JD Flynn here. You're listening to CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you the people behind the headlines. I am back today from my basement home office with the second of our two-part series on the coronavirus pandemic. In the first part of this series, we heard voices from Italy. CNA's Rome correspondents Hannah Brockhaus and Courtney Mares shared personal essays about their time under lockdown. If you haven't listened yet, add it to your queue. Today, we are turning to the U.S., where the impact and response to the coronavirus is still a couple of weeks behind places like Italy. One of the most noticeable and obvious impacts of the coronavirus in the U.S., though, at least for Catholics, has been the cancellation of public masses across the entire country. The Archdiocese of Denver, where I live, canceled public mass a few weeks ago. We've had two Sundays without making a trip to our parish. And we wanted to know what this experience of canceled public masses is like, not just for people in the pews, but for priests. So we called up a few priests to ask how they're continuing their pastoral ministry without public mass. When Father Scott Homer first heard the news that all public masses were canceled in his archdiocese, he wasn't very upset. In all honesty, he thought it would mean a much-needed break from his busy schedule as pastor. As a priest, you can be very tempted to, to want a life of comfort. And, um, and I, was, I was thinking to myself, when I heard about the coronavirus and everything is shutting down, you know, I, I, I've got to admit in my sinfulness, uh, you know, I was thinking, oh, well, time for a break, you know, and um, I don't have to work as hard. Father Scott is pastor of St. Edward the Confessor Catholic Church in the Archdiocese of Washington. The Archdiocese canceled all Masses on a Thursday. And Father Scott remembers that first weekend that followed, he wasn't quite sure what to do. And then I got kind of paralyzed with fear, you know, on Saturday, just not having any idea what to do. It was 10 minutes before confessions on Saturday, so it was about 3.50. I'm like, I know people are going to show up. I had a feeling people were going to want to come to confession, especially with all the chaos, and they wanted to talk to a priest. And I'm like, okay, how do I actually do this? I don't want to infect people in the confessional. I don't know what the right protocol is. He remembered seeing on the news that South Korea was doing drive-up testing for the coronavirus. And I said, why not have a drive-through confessional? So I just got some cones, and I put the six cones on the parking lot, and got my chair far enough away from the cones, and... uh, even brought out the confessional sign for good measure. Father Scott was already planning on meeting with a seminarian for spiritual direction, so they sat outside. He thought, worst case scenario, the seminarian could help direct cars if anyone came for confession. And sure enough, people came, and then he just kind of guided them through the line, and and that's kind of how it worked. That Saturday, they had about eight cars. Then Father Scott announced to his parish that the drive-through confession would be available during regularly scheduled mass times. On Monday morning, he had two cars. Tuesday night, one car. The following morning, eight cars. Word was getting out. Father Scott and the seminarian have a makeshift system in place, but he told me it's always evolving as new challenges are presented. The seminarian holds cars back, allowing only one car at a time to protect the seal of confession. The seminarian will ask if the Catholic in the car wants confession face-to-face or anonymously. If they prefer to remain anonymous, Father Scott will pull a sleep mask over his eyes. 
but I haven't had to blindfold myself yet. Um, everybody's been willing to go face to face. But the blindfold option is there in case they need it. Father Scott said he hasn't had a car pull up with more than one person inside. But if he does, he plans to ask anyone other than the confessor to wait in a separate part of the parking lot. Because I want to make sure that people are staying in their cars as much as possible because we got to avoid crowd formation. If we can keep people in their cars, we can reduce contagion. Father Scott also keeps his chair a good six feet away from every car. To just ensure that there's no chance of me becoming a super spreader of this thing. So in case I've got it or in case I get it, who knows? You never know. Father Scott said he believes the drive through confession can be comforting, even for those who decide not to take advantage. If they know that the priest is out there in the parking lot, it gives them a sense of, of security. I, I know like people will drive by on Mitchellville Road and they'll honk their horns and wave. It, it's, it's making me think in ways I've never thought before as a priest about how to save souls. You know what I mean? Like, okay, I don't have a church anymore in terms of a building, you know. How do we bring Christ to people now? And so drive-through confessional has been one thing we've been doing. I've been walking around the neighborhood, blessing houses with the Blessed Sacrament. There's a whole new meaning to that phrase, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. You know what I mean? Um, there's something very powerful about that. Father Scott is just one of thousands of priests in the United States trying to navigate the mass cancellations and social distancing that have become the new norm under the coronavirus pandemic. The Archbishop of Seattle was the first to cancel public masses in the U.S. He made the right decision. It was a bold decision. I, I was thinking to myself the last time something like this happened in the Archdiocese of Seattle, and I believe you have to go back to 1918 for the Spanish flu. Um, so clearly this is serious and, and uh, we want to be part of the solution. But it's a, it's a head-scratcher in terms of how we uh, continue our mission as church uh, without public gatherings. This is Father Frank Schuster. He's pastor of St. Teresa of Calcutta Parish in Woodenville in King County, Washington. King County is an epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak in the United States. St. Teresa's is only 15 minutes from the Life Care Center nursing home, where the first death from coronavirus in the U.S. took place. Father Frank's parish has continued most of its ministries online. The adult faith formation director is using the video conferencing software Zoom to connect with small groups and Bible studies. The youth minister is using Slack to check in with young people at the parish. Father Frank is uploading videos of his homilies and daily reflections. He's using his parish Instagram to lead the Divine Mercy Chaplet every day. And on the whole world, for the sake of his sorrowful passion, have mercy on us and on the whole world. And he's keeping the church open for personal prayer during normal office hours and from 9 to 3 on Sundays. Um, so we're, we're trying to use a, a technology as a way of reaching out uh, to people. And uh, because, the, you know, even though we're, you know, we, we have to shut our doors to, to public gatherings, you know, uh, that doesn't mean our doors are necessarily shut during the day. Right. You know, people can still come in and pray. Uh, we just can't have um, the, you know, the official public worship. But, you know, if they come in, we have to make sure uh, that they're safe. Father Frank is also doing everything he can to keep the sacraments available for emergency situations. I have my Eucharist and my picks in my pocket, and, and I also have my anointing oils. And so, you know, what I try to do is, you know, if I meet somebody, I'm able to take care of them on the spot if I have to, and, and try to make myself available as much as I can. 
I still plan on hearing confessions. I still plan on anointing people. But, it, you know, it'll just be done differently. We'll have to schedule these things one at a time. But uh, the mission of the church goes on. We're here to uh, lead people to Jesus through word and sacrament. And so that, that mission continues. Father Stephen Fitcher is pastor of St. Elizabeth of Hungary in the Archdiocese of Newark. The Archdiocese canceled weekend masses on March 12th, the same day as the Archdiocese of Washington. I have to say, on our end, it, it was bizarre. I mean, I entered the seminary 35 years ago, and, you know, I've been doing this for a long time in my life, and I've never had it where, you know, masses were canceled like this. Father Stephen began live-streaming weekend masses immediately after the announcement. It's such a bizarre feeling, and, and our church is large. St. Elizabeth is one of the larger parishes in the archdiocese. So the four of us were in the sanctuary, and we did have our music director and our cantor there, and they, they sang all the songs as if it were a normal mass. And so it was, it was just bizarre. You know, when I said, the Lord be with you, you know, kind of looking up at the live streaming camera, just hoping that people were watching and had no idea if they were or not. And obviously they were. There were tons of them that I were watching. I got so many emails and phone calls and text messages and Facebook uh, messages of just people saying how grateful they were that they could be at Mass, even though they couldn't be in the physical church. It was really something really beautiful, I have to say. Father Stephen is also using technology to keep in touch with his parishioners. We shut down basically everything in the parish. So from a bustling, busy uh, parish that has so many activities every day, it feels like a ghost town um, in that sense, but through uh, social media and, you know, all the internet things we have at our disposal, but just trying to, you know, keep everyone together. St. Elizabeth is across the street from a grocery store. Father Stephen said the last time he went to the grocery store, he was shocked to find entire aisles that were empty. You know, I think there's a lot of panic, a lot of anxiety that's setting in. So we put a big sign. Actually, we just made a handmade sign. We had to do it very quickly. But we put a big sign on the front lawn of our church to say, um, you know, church open 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. And then we put in big letters, be not afraid. And I really think those words of Jesus, which I believe are among the most common phrases that he used throughout the Bible, is what we have to hold on to. You be not afraid. Jesus is truly with us. We will get through this. We will survive, and we will eventually thrive again. And just trust in the presence of Jesus and trust in the goodness of our fellow citizens and, and be prudent. New Orleans is another hotspot of the coronavirus outbreak in the United States. The city is only second to Seattle in terms of number of confirmed cases per capita. So it came as no surprise to Father Tim Hedrick when his archbishop suspended all public masses in New Orleans until further notice. But he said the news was still really hard to hear. My first reaction was just sadness. I mean, I never thought ever that there would be a time when we were told we can't celebrate public masses. I've been a priest for six years, so I'm I'm still a baby priest, but I never, uh, I never ever imagined that that would happen. Father Tim is pastor of St. Catherine of Siena Parish. It's in New Orleans, about seven miles from the French Quarter. 
One of the first things Tim's parish did was set up a page dedicated to information about the coronavirus. So there's a a page that says, I want to help. And so these are where parishioners can sign up and say, I'm willing to go grocery shop for the elderly. I'm willing to cook a meal for an elderly person. I'm willing to fill in as a substitute in the Adoration Chapel so we can keep the Adoration Chapel open. So people can volunteer to sign up for things. And then there's a page where people can say, I need help. I need help getting my groceries. I need help financially. I need help, you know, tutoring my kids because right now everyone's being homeschooled. In the first day, Father Tim said he got 20 responses from parishioners, either offering help or asking for help. I'm just every day I'm monitoring it. And then if as someone comes writes in and says they have a need, we'll call them, see what their need is, and then I'll go look at the list and just connect them. I mean, my schedule right now is very wide open because almost everything got canceled. So I have the ability to, to connect those who are in need and those who are willing to help. Father Tim and his parochial vicar are also posting daily video reflections to his parish website and Facebook page. Here's one from March 17th, the day after the Archdiocese suspended all public mass. As we were praying about this video today, our first connection with you uh, virtually, this verse came out. It's 1 Peter 5, verse 7. Cast all your anxieties on him, for he cares about you. Um, I think that's really important that we hear God letting us, giving us that kind of permission, that we would throw at him all of the stress, all of the frustration, all of the anger, the questions, the confusion, um, and also the joys of some of these moments, these little uh, times where we get to smile, but that we would cast everything upon him because he does care for us and he wants to hear uh, our, our voices, he wants to hear our prayers and grow in relationship during this time. Back in Seattle, Father Frank said this is an extremely unique opportunity to experience the season of Lent in a different way. I mean, what is Lent about? Lent is about uh, following Jesus into the desert where we fast and pray. It's a time where um, we journey with Jesus to the cross, um, but we do so without fear. Um, we do so knowing and full knowledge in our hearts that uh, Jesus is victorious. I think the Holy Spirit can work uh, even through times like now, uh, to help help our hearts grow in love uh, for our Lord in a new way. Uh, but it's going to be a difficult journey. Like I say, we're, we're, we're journeying with Jesus in the desert of Lent right now. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Kate Oliveira. Even under the best circumstances, people who are homeless are among the most vulnerable to the spread of viral infections and contagious disease. In the coronavirus pandemic, they are particularly at risk. In many places, food banks and shelters are losing vital donations and volunteers because of social distancing and fear of the coronavirus. In our next segment, we talked with the Father McKenna Center in Washington, D.C. It's a day shelter for homeless men located just a few blocks from the U.S. Capitol. The McKenna Center almost shut its doors because of the coronavirus. Our producer, John McKeown, has a story. Amid the worldwide outbreak of coronavirus, Catholic organizations are having to step up even more than usual to help the poor while at the same time taking unprecedented precautions to ensure their guests don't get sick. There are literally hundreds of food pantries bravely continuing to feed the poor during this time, 
We spoke to just a handful, but all of them said something pretty similar. The neighbors are mostly very grateful that we have not shut down. Um, many, many pantries have shut down or, or social service agencies. With churches of all denominations closing across the country, donations and volunteers for these kinds of organizations are becoming harder and harder to come by. A number of the smaller food pantries that are in like church basements um, are closing because churches are closing. At one such place, however, an unlikely group of volunteers is stepping up, the homeless men themselves. Food is an issue for, I mean, even in times when it's not stressful, food is an issue for these families. This is Kim Cox, president of the Father McKenna Center, a day shelter for homeless men not far from the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C. The center also operates a food pantry for the community, which, like the food pantry in Chicago, is normally set up so guests can shop for the food they want. I'll take them back then. And would you like that in the back? Mm -hmm. There you go. Okay, thank you. And then you can also get two ramens. Mm -hmm. The center is located on the campus of a Catholic boys' high school. When school is in session, the boys often come down to the center and help cook meals for the homeless. But of course, right now, all the students have been sent home. In fact, the president of the school himself has tested positive for the coronavirus. This has, of course, had a real serious impact on our volunteers. So we have about 55 folks who are regularly scheduled, like uh, Amy, who comes and helps serve lunch every Monday. So all of our regularly scheduled volunteers, they're not coming. Now, I have three other volunteers. I have three full-time volunteers. I have one Jesuit volunteer corps volunteer. I have two Franciscan Mission Service volunteers. Those three are continuing to be with us. I'm really proud of them. This is not what they signed up for when they signed up for their year. But they are jumping in and giving us a hand and making this work. The center normally houses 10 men during the coldest winter months in its hypothermia program, which they plan to continue to do for the time being. They also provide a place for men to drop in during the day, as well as case management and other aid. But now, they've had to adapt. And part of that adaptation means asking most of the men, those not in the hypothermia program, to go elsewhere. The shelters in the city that house homeless people at night have expanded their hours to be open all day, and are also serving three meals. What this means, however, is that most of the men will need to stay inside the shelters and won't be able to come back to the McKenna Center for the time being. We stayed open on Monday because we wanted to talk to the men about closing down. Um, wanted to give them a chance to process it, to express disappointment, anger, fear, whatever they have. They were disappointed. They were mostly just grateful that we took them so seriously. The shelters in D.C. don't exactly have a reputation for being happy and cheerful places. Cortez McDaniel, the director of services, I think did a real good job of helping them think about, okay, if you go in there, uh, go in there with peace in your heart and not, you know, first person that bugs me, I'm gonna bust him in the chops, right? To walk in, recognizing the need for peace and a calm reaction to what's going on. And then, you know, as, as they left, we had about 32 guys in. As they left, uh, we gave them all a fresh pair of underwear and two pair of socks and a toiletry kit. So I felt good that we were, we were in a position to do that, to help them understand 
how it is that staying in the shelter and not going to lots of different places during the day where there are lots of people is better for them. Kim said the situation of not being able to bring in outside volunteers actually presents a unique opportunity for the homeless men who are left to help out. The staff had agreed to pitch in to do a real deep clean of the kitchen. Um, And all these guys in the hypothermia program said, well, we're going to help too. So, you know, eight of them were in the in the kitchen scrubbing today. You know, they got half the kitchen sanitized today, deep cleaning, and they felt good about that. It really enhances their dignity if they feel like they can do something constructive. So the food bank contacted us to see if we would be willing to become a community hub. And as a community hub, we would just be open to any D.C. resident um, that would come and pick up a box of, you know, pre, pre-pa- a prepared box of groceries. They would all be shelf-stable items like, you know, canned vegetables, canned fruit, uh, tomato sauce, soup, beans. The Father McKenna Center began its new role as a community hub for food distribution on March 18th. So um, Monday through Thursday in the afternoon from 1.30 to 4, we will be open to serve D.C. residents. We will do this in a way that is safe for everyone. So we're going to set up a pop-up tent outside the door, hand people their bag of groceries, minimize contact, um, try and help them keep social distance in line. So, right, we're supposed to stay six feet apart. Most of their guests are elderly, making them particularly susceptible to the virus and low income and live in the neighborhood. Like this friend of Kim's, Selma Wise, who said many of the seniors are simply having to support each other during this time. Because we senior needs need our food. We really do. We need this food. That's been coming here for many, many decades. I'm so yes, happy. Yes. I'm happy that we've been able to be part of that for you. How are your friends and neighbors doing? So far, so good. They, you know, some of them, you know, staying in and others going, doing for them to the store, back and forth to the store. Oh, good. Mm-hmm. So... So you all are taking good care of each other? Oh, yes, we are. We seniors, yes, oh, we are. You take care of yourself and you stay well. Oh, yeah, I'm trying, I'm uh, trying. God bless you. The men from our hypothermia program helped make that happen. They helped bag the groceries and, and move them where we need them so we've got access to them. It's terrific that they have uh, this desire to help other people and that we have the opportunity to give them something to do because cabin fever may be setting in sooner than any of us want it to. Of course, these aren't the only examples of food banks and aid agencies remaining open during this time. From Bowbridge, Louisiana, to Mobile, Alabama, to Bridgeport, Connecticut, and everywhere in between, Catholics across the country will continue to serve the poor as best they can for as long as they can. I really believe that this this is an opportunity for us to come together and not get torn apart. That's my prayer, that we come out of here caring about our neighbors and being a stronger community, whether it's your block, your city, or the whole country. I think it's possible. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Jonah McKeown. We will be right back.
Hi, everyone. This is Father John Paul Mary, the Franciscan Missionaries of the Eternal Word. I'm the chaplain for EWTN employees. You may remember me from episode 18, The Pirate Nun. If you enjoyed listening to CNA Newsroom and CNA Editor's Desk as much as I do, and I have to say it's the highlight of my week, you can subscribe to both of these shows and get them delivered straight to your phone as soon as they're posted. Just search on your favorite podcast app for CNA Newsroom, tap the subscribe button, and then do the same for CNA Editor's Desk. Both shows are available on Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and many more. And may the blessing of Almighty God be upon you this day, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And now back to the episode. Millions of Americans have found sobriety or freedom or recovery from addictions through 12-step programs like Alcoholics Anonymous. Those programs rely on community and face-to-face meeting and interaction. So what happens to addiction recovery when we have to practice social distancing? Here's Senior Features writer Mary Farrow. Social distancing has become the new normal under the coronavirus pandemic. A lot of people are struggling with restlessness and boredom. But there is a small population, often overlooked, that can be especially affected by social distancing. Addicts. There's going to be people who figure out they're alcoholic during this time. Being trapped at home instead of busy with work and activities, heavy drinkers are very likely going to figure out that there's an issue there. But how are they going to get a hold of us? This is Joelle. She's a wife and a mother in California, and she's been in recovery through Alcoholics Anonymous for 10 years. We have a, a little refrain that we say. It's when anyone, anywhere, reaches out for help, We want the hand of AA to always be there. And for that, I am responsible. Well, in this time, they really are going to have to reach out. They're going to have to find us. Involvement in Alcoholics Anonymous varies from person to person, but typically a member of AA attends meetings at least once a week, often more frequently, and has regular meetings with a sponsor, who is usually a member with more years in recovery, who offers guidance through the 12 steps of recovery. Despite what people might think about Alcoholics Anonymous, based on movies or TV shows, the primary reason for in-person meetings is not so much therapy as it is to offer a place for newcomers to meet others in recovery and to find a sponsor. But new federal and state guidelines to help slow the spread of coronavirus have made in-person AA meetings next to impossible. Most 12-step groups, including Joel's, have started meeting virtually through video conferencing software like Zoom. Joel said attendance at her virtual meetings has been high. One of the meetings I go to is an every morning meeting, every day of the week, at 6.30 a.m. And you know, a lot of the people who come to that meeting, they're kind of hit and miss because some days they need to be at work at, you know, 7.30 and coming to a 6.30 meeting doesn't make sense. But now that we're on Zoom, all of them are coming. Joelle said her group is also picking up people from other groups who have not yet organized virtual meetings. So our meeting is bigger and more vital than ever. I, I also think the stressful situation makes people want more AA meetings. 
I would say we need more connection, not less, when there's stress. So home isolation is really rough for an alcoholic, but being able to attend more meetings because you're sitting at home and so you don't have conflict, you know, it's kind of a mixed bag. But these new virtual meetings do present some challenges. Mostly, it's really hard to connect with newcomers. Usually, somebody drops into a meeting, and like I said, they don't leave that meeting without some phone numbers and exchanging numbers so that they don't get lost in AA. But obviously, you know, that's not possible right now. Joelle said AA already has conference call meetings from time to time. But she hopes this experience will pave the way for more video conferencing and virtual meetings in the future. From my perspective, there's plenty of times when you would want to have someone able to zoom in because maybe they've got cancer and they're in chemo. They're stuck at home. They can't come. I really believe this will be the wave of the future in terms of giving people more options. Connecting with a higher power is crucial for all 12-step recovery programs. But doing so can be hard for Catholics who can't attend Mass right now or go to confession regularly due to coronavirus restrictions. Joelle said that for the past few weeks, she has been saying a daily rosary and a morning meditation and turning to prayer more often throughout her day. She encouraged Catholics to set aside fear and to look for ways that God is calling them to be of service every day. I am constantly looking for the role that God is assigning me right now. We uh, alcoholics, we know my life is not on hold right now. My life is exactly where I am right now, and I want to focus on the present, and especially on being in service in the present. So whatever that means, for me it means uh, using my cooking skills and time to get meals to people who are shut in, especially to uh, people over 65 or who otherwise have health concerns, you know, to be able to take them a meal and leave it on their doorstep and make sure they're okay and go grocery shopping for them so they aren't exposed. You know, those are things that help Catholics and they help alcoholics too. 12-step groups typically take place locally. If you or someone you know would like to connect with a 12-step program in your area, Joelle suggested looking online by searching for your city and AA meetings, or whichever recovery group you need. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Mary Farrow. In our last segment, we have for you the really neat story about the impact of prayer during the 19th century cholera outbreak in the U.S. In the basement of St. Francis Xavier College Church, on the campus of St. Louis University, stands a statue of the Blessed Mother, an infant Christ. Cut of plain white stone, the statue stands smaller than life on a pedestal across from a small daily mass chapel. It bears some obvious signs of age. The fingers on the child's hand, extended in blessing, have eroded away, and the corner of Mary's lips displays a darkened blemish. It appears, on first sight, rather unremarkable. Unremarkable, that is, until one learns of its place in the history of the school. In the late 1840s, 
the world was in the grip of a cholera pandemic. This was the second cholera outbreak that century. The first had swept through the globe in the 1830s. At the time, St. Louis was a growing river town and the gateway to the expanding American West. The spreading cholera pestilence made its way to the city in January of 1849. St. Louis's status as both a travel hub and a burgeoning city in its own right, along with the city's poor sewage, made it a hotbed for the outbreak of the disease. It was a scary time, it was a scary place to be. This is Christopher Allen Gordon. He's the director of library and collections at the Missouri Historical Society. He wrote the book on the disasters of the year 1849 in St. Louis, literally. It's called Fire, Pestilence, and Death, St. Louis, 1849. It starts almost literally right at the beginning of the year in January, and it was a slow increase through late winter into the early months of spring. But the height of, uh, of the epidemic was really from late April through mid-July. It would be another decade or so until medical science developed germ theory during the American Civil War. Not knowing what caused cholera to spread, the city took all sorts of drastic measures, some effective, some not. They banned vegetables and sauerkraut, cleaned up the streets, burned tar by the barrel, and established a quarantine hospital people began to flee the city. At some point, you know, you read these accounts, particularly like in May and June of 1849, where people talk about the streets becoming empty. St. Louis was a city of around 77,000 at the beginning of 1849. Numbers from the time are difficult to track, but the official death count from the pandemic in the city stands at 5,547. According to Christopher, however, most estimates are placed higher to account for untallied deaths among slaves, as well as those who died outside the city limits proper. Many records simply note that one-tenth of the city population succumbed to the illness, a decimation in the most literal sense. St. Louis University, then a boys' school in the heart of the city, found itself pressed by the pandemic on all sides. Documents contained in the archives of both the university and the central southern Jesuit province, which is headquartered in St. Louis, tell the story. The pandemic began to escalate in April that year, and would reach its peak in July. In this growing climate of uncertainty, anxiety began to grip the school. In May of that year, as the sickness was gaining ground, the school came up with their own solution. That's where the statue in St. Francis Xavier College Church comes in. Father Isidore Bedreau, a French and English teacher at the university and head of the school's Sodality of the Blessed Virgin Mary Club, summoned the entire student body to the chapel one day that month. There, the entire school swore that if they would be spared any deaths from the disease, they would crown the statue in silver in gratitude to Our Lady parents, many of whom sent their sons to board at the school, began to worry for the safety of their children. The next month, the university closed its session early, canceling commencement exercises and sending students back to their homes. Meanwhile, the pandemic peaked in July, recording over 2,000 fatalities, and ending the following month. 
August of that year saw only 54 officially recorded cholera deaths. Throughout the pandemic, the seven Jesuit priests at the university had been ministering to the sick day and night. According to one letter from Pierre-Jean de Smet, bodies could be seen from the school's campus. Nevertheless, when students returned to school in September, not one member of the school's student body, faculty, or staff had died from the plague. The community took this as a sign of the Blessed Mother's protection and prepared to fulfill their end of the promise. Father David Sawalski is the head of SLU's Theological Studies Department and a historian. He described the school's vow to the Blessed Mother. I'm not sure that they had any sort of guarantee that they would emerge unscathed, but they just trusted that that was the right thing to do, and I think that's all we can do is trust that the Lord provides for us and that we will um, continue to believe that God's help and grace is always present and available to us. A letter from Father DeSmet records the date of the coronation ceremony as October 8, 1849. It seems the school spared no expense. DeSmet recalls decorations of evergreen garlands, flowers, white wreaths, and lamps arranged in the shapes of hearts, crowns, and crosses. The two-and-a-half-hour ceremony included benediction, a sermon, and a number of hymns. At the climax, the recently smelted crown was processed twice around the church and placed on the head of the statue as the congregation chanted the Te Deum. DeSmet called the scene beautiful and imposing, recalling that the room had an almost death-like silence. Today, the statue stands in a remote location beneath the main church of St. Francis Xavier. The crown, tucked safely in storage, is rarely seen. It's easy for this story to fall through the cracks, but in the time of coronavirus, our mother's intercession is well worth recalling. You know, these things aren't sadly unique, and we should understand that, um, you know, you do the right things, and you keep working, and we'll get past it, we'll get through it. It's this idea that the caring mother of God will take care of us. Special thanks to Joe Slama for reporting this story. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Jonah McKeown. Well, guys, like a lot of you, I have been surprised by just how much time we have during the era of social distancing. I didn't realize how much of family time was taken up by commuting and school obligations and social obligations and church obligations until all of a sudden those things ground to a halt. And now we have all this time. And I thought that we would use this time in constructive ways and use it for family bonding, but... We're using at least more of it than I would like, shotgunning shows on Netflix or looking at our phones. I know there's something better. I know that we could be using this leisure time for something life-giving. In next week's episode of CNA Newsroom, we will talk all about leisure. What is it? How do you use it? How do you use it well? We'll see you then. 
CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. We're produced and edited by Kate Oliveira and Jonah McKeown. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. I'm your host and CNA Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and we will talk to you next week. Be well, everyone. We're praying for you. Thank you.